again, Exodus chapter 32, verse 7. We read in this passage of scripture this morning, the story of the golden calf continues. We left our story last week at the foot of the mountain where Aaron had crafted this golden calf to uh, answer the rebellion and the complaints of the people of God. And the people of God as this golden calf is erected and Aaron makes an altar before it. They begin to worship this golden calf as if it is Yahweh himself. In the very end of that section, verse 6, it says, And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is quite the moment. And in fact, this is a really, really terrible moment in the history of God's people. It is, in fact, and we touched on this last week, and God is going to talk about it specifically in this passage. This is complete rejection of the God who saved them and who was still visible on the mountaintop. If they had raised their eyes to see it, they could still see the cloud and the fire at the top of Mount Sinai where Moses was. So that's where we left off last week, was down at the foot of the mountain. When we read this passage, the scene changes again, and we make our way back to the top of the mountain, and we have a conversation between God and Moses. God is going to inform Moses about what the people are doing. And then God and Moses have this actually really incredible conversation. There's a lot in this passage of Scripture about the justice and the mercy of God. There's a lot in this passage of Scripture about the character of Moses himself, especially as the leader of God's people. Something that's kind of fun to watch as you go through this passage of Scripture God and Moses throw around the ownership of the people like it's a hot potato. God's literally going to tell Moses, okay, now your people down there whom you took out of Egypt are doing this. And when Moses replies to God and he goes, well, they're not my people, they're your people, and this is what you've done with them. So it's kind of a fun thing to watch in the passage. It's also an important thing to watch with what God does with Moses throughout this entire story, Moses' language turns from your people to my people and our people. So that becomes something fascinating to watch with Moses as the story unfolds. But overall, this story about the golden calf and the people of God, it takes another step forward. Aaron and the people have rebelled against God, and now God and Moses discuss what should be done with the people. God has covenanted with them to be their God and to take them into the promised land, and now their rebellion is so bad, it puts all of that in jeopardy. So in our passage of Scripture today, Moses is going to appeal to God on behalf of the people. And the way that he does it is absolutely incredible. Some things to keep in mind as we walk through this passage. First of all, Moses appeals for the people. God is going to make a shocking offer to Moses, and Moses is going to reject it on behalf of the people of God, an incredible part of the conversation. So Moses appeals for his people. Moses will appeal to God's covenant promises. 
as he intercedes on behalf of the people of God. And in fact, that's what intercession means. He is praying because of the sin or for the needs of the people of God. He's, he's lifting up the needs of other people before God. And as he does so, he reminds God that God has made promises. So as he prays and intercedes, he goes to God and says, you've done this already with your people. You promised, you covenanted with your people. I want you to behave according to that covenant. So Moses is actually going to appeal to God's covenant promise. And then finally, part of what I think is so incredible about this passage is Moses will appeal to the glory of God. This is an amazing thing in this conversation. How will God's glory best be seen in this horrible situation? Well, let's begin reading. We're in Exodus chapter 32. We're going to pick up reading here in verse 7. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Go down... For your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves against me. They've turned very quickly against me. They've set up a golden calf. They've begun to worship false gods. They've replaced me with this golden calf. God informs Moses what's happening at the bottom of the mountain. You've got to imagine uh, where Moses is. Put yourself in Moses' shoes for just a moment or two. He has been on the top of the mountain for a while. He says 40 days and 40 nights. Moses is literally having a mountaintop experience with God. He's receiving the law. He's received the Ten Commandments. God is describing the tabernacle and its beauty, the sacrificial system, the priests and how they will work and how the people of God will become this nation that belongs to God and reflects his character and nature. All of that is going on. And then at one point, God then turns to Moses and says, okay, now now it's time to go back down the mountain because the people have turned against me and I am going to destroy them. This is an incredible moment. He informs Moses what is going on. And again, God uses that language. Your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have turned against me. This is actually a frightening moment. Because God, who has shown his power on behalf of his people, confronted Moses, or excuse me, confronted Pharaoh, overcome and overpowered and defeated the pagan deities and idols and gods of Egypt, released them into the wilderness, parted the Red Sea, done all of this visibly on behalf of his people, now does this. God distances himself from his people. He says, I need you to go back down the mountain. In fact, at one point, God says, get out of my way because my anger is going to burn hot against them and I will consume them. 
This is a frightening moment in which God is distancing himself from his people in order to destroy his people because of the depth of their rebellion. God says something incredible in this passage. He says, they have corrupted themselves. Now, this word in the Hebrew is important to the biblical story. The first time this word shows up to describe the level of unrighteousness and sin that is happening at the bottom of the mountain, God chooses a word that he used when he talked to Noah. So you go back to Genesis chapter 6. In the first 10 verses of Genesis chapter 6 are one of the most incredible and amazing and almost unbelievable passages in all of the Old Testament. It says there in Genesis chapter 6, the first 10 verses, that the um, sons of God saw that the daughters of men were lovely, and they took them, and they bred this half-divine, fallen angel, half-human race that's called the Nephilim. Okay, that sounds like a crazy story, but that's Genesis chapter 6. It's not just that, but then when God then starts to talk to Moses, or excuse me, Noah, He says, Noah, the thoughts of the people around you, the humans around you, their thoughts and their deeds are constantly turned toward evil, and they have corrupted themselves. So as he discusses this with Noah, what happens? Noah's a righteous man, and God saves Noah and his family, and he destroys everyone else, and he starts over with Noah because of the corruption, the level of sin and unrighteousness in the world around him. So here's God on the top of the mountain with Moses, and he uses the same word to say, I'm going to do the same thing. They've corrupted themselves so badly that I'm going to destroy them, and I'm going to start all over with you and with your family. This is the kind of evil that God is dealing with. This is the kind of consequence that God has in mind for his people. God tells Moses, they turned aside quickly. When you do the chronology from the day that they left Egypt to the time that they get to uh, the the bottom of Mount Sinai, it's not that long. It hasn't been that long since the plagues of Egypt and even less time since the parting of the Red Sea. And we've noted this as we've walked through this story. People want miracles. They believe that if God has power on our behalf and he does amazing things and we're intended to remember those things and love God, but it is human nature to ask God, what have you done for me lately? Right? So we don't build enduring faith on those that happen. We build enduring faith in our knowledge of God and our love for God, our love of God greater than our love of ourselves of this world. And the people of God here at the bottom of Mount Sinai, they don't have this yet. And God actually knows that they have worshiped this golden calf by saying, these are the gods who have led you out of Egypt. They've exchanged God for a lie. This reminds us of something that God said when he was working with Moses and confronting Pharaoh, and God is telling Moses why he wants his people to go free. We see this clearly in Exodus chapter 9, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh 
and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. This is why God is releasing his people. So they become his, so that they will worship him instead of these pagan idols, instead of themselves, instead of mammon, instead of whatever else, so that they will worship me. So what are they doing now? All of this, the level of corruption and evil, God's plan with Moses, all of this is a revelation to him. He did not know that this was going on at the bottom of the mountain. It was interesting to me this week as I kind of read through different takes on this passage of scripture, going all the way back to the earliest sort of rabbinical traditions, the, the, the ways that people interpreted this passage of scripture, all the way to Christian scholarship today, they see this pause of silence between verse 8 and verse 9. God tells Moses, this is what they have done. And then there's a period and an end quote in your English Bibles. And the feeling is that Moses is so amazed that he's just dumbstruck. That he just stands there. He's taking this in. So then the, God, and then, so then the Lord begins again, and he talks to Moses again. And he says in verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. This becomes a fairly common description in the Old Testament of the people of God. They're like animals who will not take direction from the reins, and they're going to do what they want to do no matter the cost. They've become a stiff-necked people. Now, God says in verse 10, now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God tells Moses two incredible things in that passage. First, now therefore, leave me alone. It's this incredible moment. The implication is that if Moses goes ahead and leaves, By the time Moses gets to the bottom of the mountain, his family will be the only family left. Leave me alone, I'm gonna destroy everybody. The other side of that implication is, if Moses stays, something else might happen. And God also tells him, leave me alone, I'm gonna destroy them, in order that I might make you a great nation. So this is, in the Old Testament, just an astonishing moment. If the people of God are destroyed, God is going to take the promise that he gave Abraham and he's going to fulfill it through Moses. So he told Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. No one's going to be able to number your sons and daughters. I will give you the land. I will bring your people back here. And God says to Moses, that's what I'm going to do now through you instead. We're starting over and you're going to become the new patriarch of the people of God. So the gravity of this moment is a little hard to absorb for us. After all that God has done to free and redeem his people, this is the level of sin. And friends, we have to keep this in mind. This is the just punishment of sin. Keep that in mind as we continue through this passage of scripture. Let's pick up the rest of the conversation starting in verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? 
whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven in all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken to bring on his own people. This is a significant moment in the history of God's people. It's remembered a few other times in the Old Testament. Psalm 106 remembers this moment. Psalm 106, verses 19 through 23 say this. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. I mean, you've got to let those kinds of phrases sink in. They exchanged the glory of God for a beast of burden that eats off the dirt of the ground. This is what we do when we exchange God for the other things that we want to worship. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. There's a way in which Psalm 106, those verses that we just read, what they're saying is, the children of Israel, speaking to the children of Israel, we would not be here if Moses had not stood in the gap. If he had not pled for us, we wouldn't be here. Moses actually recalls this story himself in Deuteronomy chapter 9. He reminds the people of God, this is how stiff-necked you are. These are the kinds of things that you people do. <laughs> and he says, after he tells that story, he reminds the people of God. It's a great passage in Deuteronomy 9. God did not choose you because you were a great people. God chose you, and that's why you're his people. He didn't choose you because you were never going to sin and you were going to be great and you're a powerful and mighty and righteous people. That's not why he chose you. I was on the mountain when he was ready to destroy you. He chose you, people. That's why you're his nation. That's why you're his children. Because of the decision of God to choose and to not destroy. So we have to talk for a moment or two about this conversation because this conversation always raises similar questions in, in people's minds as they read through this passage. So we're going to know every single one of those, and we're going to get to the good stuff. And you can deal with it. I'm going to disappear later. You can talk to other people about the questions you have. Moses argues with God. That's about the best way to put it. He's interceding for his people, 
but he's actually arguing with God in the sense of God says, I'm going to do this. And Moses says, well, why don't we do this instead? And Moses makes his appeal and Moses speaks with God, right? And interesting things happen. God says he's going to do one thing and Moses argues for something else. And the text actually says that God relented from what he said he would do. It reminds us of another famous conversation like this earlier in the Old Testament when God appears to Abraham and he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham knows that Lot and his family are there. This is family of Abraham's. And so what does he do? He begins to bargain with God and God compromises with him. If there are X number of people who are righteous, will you save Sodom and Gomorrah? And right, so God goes through that and Sodom and Gomorrah get destroyed and leveled anyway. But we have that same kind of conversation between God and Abraham that we have with God and Moses in this passage. How does this work? What does this mean? What is Moses doing? And I think more significantly for you and me right now, what does this mean for our prayer life with God? How does prayer work? What is God doing when he does these things with Moses and Abraham and when he does it with us as well? I think there are four important things to keep in mind as we absorb a passage like this, we figure out what it means. The first of those four things is this. God communicates. God came to Abraham and said, this is what I'm going to do. God, uh, at one point, turns to Moses and says, okay, Moses, this is what's happening, and this is what I'm going to do. Why is this important? Because God does not need to tell anybody what he's going to do. He does not need my approval. He, doesn't need not, he does not need my justification. I don't need to pat him on the back, say, God, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Go ahead and do it. He doesn't need any of that. He doesn't have to communicate. God is always, and again, this is important to us this morning, God is always in his right to judge sin. He is holy and righteous and all he does is good and just, and God in his character and nature can at all times judge sin. And to Moses, he is asking Moses to reply. He is asking Moses to respond. He is asking Moses now to identify, he is asking Moses now to identify with the people of God and stand in the gap. So God communicates, and he does it on purpose so that you and I will respond. These kinds of passages, as well as wants you and me to be in interaction with him, to lay our prayers before him, this is specifically a moment of what we would call interceding. It is prayer on behalf of someone else or prayer on behalf of another need that we see, and we're asking God to intervene and to do the kinds of things that only he can do in this moment for his good and for the good of others, people we love and culture at large and all these things. This is a moment of intercession. God wants you to pray. He wants you to intercede. So he's communicating his will, his desire. He wants us to discern what's going on in the world around us so that we can take these things to him, so that we can pray. God communicates. He wants his people to pray. And then this is part of the mystery of it all. And in a context like this, I don't mind using the word mystery. I really don't. God takes us seriously when we pray. God listens 
to Moses. He takes what Moses says seriously. In fact, again, I think this is what God wants. He wants Moses to react. He wants Moses to respond like this. We're going to get to this in just a moment, but note that Moses does not respond by saying, you know what, God, this is awesome. I would love for my kids to replace Isaac and Jacob. I would love for them to replace. They they were jerks anyway. My kids are better. He doesn't respond that way. That's important. And then when God relents, when he shows mercy instead of judgment, God is still responding according to his character and will. It is true that God is holy and righteous and just. It is also true. And here's where you and I live. It is also true that he is a God of steadfast love. A God whose mercy is new every single morning. So when God does something different, he hasn't changed his character. He hasn't done something capricious or unexpected. He is still behaving according to his will and according to his character. So verse 14 just simply says, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had planned for the nation of Israel. Now, we need to draw something, that, uh, draw something into our conversation this morning that happens later in the story. We're not going to get to it today, but it's important. Moses is going to come down the mountain, and there will still be a moment of reckoning. There still needs to be repentance. There's, there's actually a line in the sand that is drawn, and it turns out that 3,000 men refuse to repent of their sin, and all of them die at the hands of the Levites. Sin still needs to be cleansed from the camp. There still needs to be repentance on behalf of the people of God. So that still happens. But God chooses in this moment mercy instead of judgment. So this is this conversation from, I guess you could put it, the the perspective of God's character and will and behavior. Let's look at Moses for a moment or two in this passage. Notice that Moses rejects the plan or rejects the offer, so to speak, to make him the new patriarch of the nation, of the people of God. This actually tells us a lot about the character of Moses. This tells us a lot about the kind of leadership that God wants from his people. So Moses is a humble leader. This is actually a thing in the Old Testament when it comes to Moses. It's interesting that one of the greatest leaders in all of humanity, one of the names that has been remembered for thousands of years as a great leader, as the giver of the law, as the man who saw God face to face, is remembered as a humble leader. In fact, Numbers chapter 12, verse 13 says this, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. He's the most humble man you've ever known. I used to joke with the teenagers that I worked with, listen, I am the most humble person you will ever meet. What do you do with that? 
That's incredible. That this man who's spoken with God in the fire of the burning bush on the top of Mount Sinai, at one point as he's dealing with the people of God, he has to wear a veil over his face because he has seen God and the people of God cannot, cannot handle the brightness of his countenance. And yet it is true of him that he was more meek, more humble than anyone on the face of the earth. You may remember that when God originally calls Moses, Moses says, I don't speak well, I stutter, I don't want to be your voice before Pharaoh. Moses also does not now want to be the brand new patriarch for the people of God. He wants the people to be saved. This is what Moses wants. This is how he responds to the judgment of sin. He says, I want my people to be saved. A humble leader, friends, allows themselves to be formed by the position God has given them, to be formed by their duty before God, instead of using their position for personal gain. This is how God has designed the role of leadership, leadership in general, and especially leadership in the church, that it is a role for the formation of the leader, for the conforming of the leader to the character of Christ, to the character of God. The role of leadership as designed by God is not for the sake of performance. It's not for the sake of personal gain. Now, this is weird to us because we live in a world in which most of our leadership, they desire positions of influence and leadership for their own personal gain not for your good but here's Moses of all people using the place that God has given him not for himself he pushes that aside and he says I'm using this position for the good of the people around me the apostle Paul we see something like this in him as well first Corinthians chapter 11 verse 1 very simply he says be imitators of me as I am of Christ I had a religion professor at UCCS a long time ago who said Paul was the most arrogant man in the Bible, and he kept citing this verse of Scripture. Friends, to me, this is one of the most frightening verses of Scripture that there is for a leader. If you're going to follow me in any way whatsoever, I had better be looking like Christ. That's my job as a leader. That's your job as a leader. Look like Christ because others will follow you. Sometimes it's said the definition of leader, you'll know you're a leader if people are following you. Okay, where are they following you to? Some leaders just send people straight to hell. The apostle Paul says, follow me, but only as I follow Christ. A humble and godly leader is able to let God do his work, which in the end is so much greater than anything a leader can do. Greatest thing a leader can do is let God do his work. Humility in the hands of God becomes a kind of power that human beings just don't have. And we're in a desert of leadership right now. We just are. Both in culture at large and in the church, we need more people Moses, willing to be formed by the role of responsibility, whatever it is that God has given them, and willing to work for the good of others. 
In fact, that's the next point. Moses leads for the good of the people. And this is the biblical understanding of the role of leader. Where is the sweet spot between the will of God and the lives of the people that I lead right now? Where is that sweet spot? Not, where is the um, best social media platform and what I think I need to do next? Where's the sweet spot there? (laughs) That's not biblical leadership. The Apostle Paul, again, talking to the Corinthians, who, by the way, were also a mess, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, he says, look, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Your lives as filled with the grace and the mercy and the likeness of Christ, that's my letter of recommendation, not how great I am. So instead of allowing them to be wiped off the face of the earth, Moses is going to open the door for repentance and mercy. For repentance and mercy. So Moses appeals, we come back to this notion, he appeals to God on behalf of the people. And he does it in very specific ways in this conversation that we just read. Moses appeals to God's redemption. He says, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? You have done all these things on their behalf, and you have done it publicly and visibly. This is language that's throughout the early parts of the stories. We've dealt with this a lot earlier in the book of Exodus. God has redeemed. He has bought back his people. And Moses says, you've redeemed them. Don't burn in anger toward them. They are yours. Moses appeals to the redemption of God, and he appeals to the great name of God. Why would you allow the Egyptians to say, now this God of theirs did all of this just to take them to this mountain and slaughter them? By the way, that's what the Egyptians wanted to do. The Egyptians wanted to destroy all of them and re-enslave the rest of them. So Moses appeals to the great name of God to keep them alive, God, show them mercy so that people on the rest of the earth, the other nations can say, this is how great this God is. And then Moses appeals to God's covenant, the promise that he made. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel and the promise that you made to them to make their nation great and large, no one can number, to bring them into the promised land, and that it would be theirs forever. Remember your people, God. God gave Moses the chance to be the new Abraham, but Moses says God has already promised the land of the children of Abraham and the people at the bottom of the mountain, even those who have corrupted themselves. And this, friends, to me is, is maybe... The big idea, this is the thing that stuns me about this passage. Ultimately, Moses appeals for God's glory to be seen in his mercy. He appeals to God that his glory would be seen in an act of stunning, unmerited mercy. They've corrupted themselves. They're worshiping another idol. You have redeemed them. Forgive them and save them so that the nations will see the glory 
of God. Again, as completely holy and righteous and just. God is the judge of sin, and he has the absolute eternal right and power to judge all sin. An entire nation caught up in rebellion for their pagan worship. Moses does not argue, it's not that bad, God. They're not really that bad as sinners. He doesn't argue that. He argues for just a pure act of mercy on behalf of God. And in mercy, the name of God is great. The prophet Daniel prayed something very similar for his people, on behalf of his people. In Daniel chapter 9, it's, it's a long, overwhelming prayer. But the way that he finishes it, again, sounds a lot like Moses. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God because your city and your people are called by your name. They are your people. You have redeemed them. This is your city. They bear your name. So I'm asking you, God, to show mercy. Don't delay. Show mercy to sinful people and send them home. Moses says, show mercy to people and do not destroy them, but instead give them a chance to repent and not be destroyed. In mercy, God's name is great. Has God shown you mercy? Has God forgiven you of your sins? Has God saved you? Scripture is clear. All of us, by nature, are children of wrath. We are born in our sin, and we are enemies of God. But God in his mercy, has reached out to us through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, so that by his grace, through faith, we are saved, not of our own work. We're not a great nation that God would choose us. We become see people because he has chosen us. Has God saved you? Has God forgiven you? Has God shown you mercy? If so, then you are a walking sermon of the glory of God. You are a walking sermon of the mercy that God shows sinners. This is how great our God is. Do not be deceived. Christ is coming. Sin will be judged, and it will be done for all of eternity. The King of Kings is on his way. And all rebellion and all sin will be done forever. But today, he is a God of patience. He is a God of mercy who is calling out to people to believe in him and have eternal life. And in his act of mercy, his name is great. In his act of mercy and forgiveness in your life and my life, God is great. God is glorious. 
Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And that's been in my mind, my heart, as I've gone through this passage of Scripture. In large part, because our culture is at the bottom of the mountain and they have corrupted themselves. And our culture is worshiping demonic gods. And we are sacrificing children by the thousands. Children in the womb, young adults, teenagers, the elderly. Friends, follow the news on this kind of stuff. And the number of laws and the rates of euthanasia just keep rising and rising and rising in cultures that used to be Christian. We want to kill children in the womb. We want to mutilate and sterilize them when they are teenagers. And we want to kill them before they get old enough to die on their own. Our culture is corrupted to the core when it comes to these things. But we are in a pocket of time where you and I as the church of Jesus Christ are called to be light. We're called to be salt. We season the world that we are in. We season the culture that we are in. We are called to stand in the gap the way Moses did, the way Abraham did, to live like people who belong to the kingdom of God and not to the kingdom of this world. And friends, to even intercede on behalf those who are following other gods, to intercede on behalf of those who need to know Christ and be saved. Some of those people are people we know, people who are in our families. Some of those people are people that we watch on the news and on social media constantly. All of this sin is due the judgment of God. But until then, you and I, Pray for mercy. And how glorious is it when a sinner is saved? How glorious is it when a life is completely changed? Someone has been on the way to eternal damnation and separation from God, and the Holy Spirit reaches in and changes that life. And now instead of judgment, there is mercy. How glorious is that? And you and I can pray for that. You and I can intercede for that. God wants us to do that. We can live, friends, in this world like there is another way to live. The way of Jesus Christ, the goodness of God. I'm going to ask the worship team if they'd make their way back up. And before we leave, before we go this morning, and we always finish in, in, in prayer and in worship and reflection, But I want us, if you would stand with us, please, as well. I want us this morning to pray specifically for three things. And and let's pray it about the culture that we are in right now. If there are people in your life that you can think of specifically that fit this kind of category, I want us to pray for them specifically. This is how I want us to pray as we sing and worship and as we do this together as the people of God this morning. I want us to pray for repentance, that the Holy Spirit would be at work in the hearts and minds of people in ways that 
they can know and understand in ways that you and I rarely ever even see and know, but that the Spirit of God is at work and that there would be repentance in those lives. That we would pray as well that there would be healing and restoration. Because a lot of what's going on in the world around us, corruption just creates pain. That's all it creates is pain. So a lot of people need healing, physical, emotional, family, psychological, spiritual. They need healing and they need restoration. And I want us to pray for mercy. I want us to pray for mercy. God will do in his sovereign will what God wants to do. But he's called us as his people to pray for mercy, pray for repentance, for healing and restoration. I want us to pray for the mercy of God, for his glory to be seen in his mercy. Let's just do that together, friends, as we pray and as we sing this morning.